0: Today's episode is brought to you by Morgan Talty's Night of the Living Res, a debut collection of stories that Brandon Hobson calls beautifully crafted, raw, and intimate. Set in a Native community in Maine, Night of the Living Res is about what it means to be Penobscot in the 21st century and what it means to live, to survive, and to persevere after tragedy. In 12 striking luminescent stories, Talty breathes life into tales of family and a community as they struggle with a painful past and an uncertain future, says Laura Vandenberg. I love these sharply, atmospheric, daring, and intensely moving stories, each one dense with peril and tenderness. Morgan Talty is a thrilling new talent. Night of the Living Res is out on July 5th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. Today's guest, Hernan Diaz, in talking about his new book, Trust, has sometimes called the entire book a spoiler, which in some ways is true, but reviewers and Hernan himself seem to have come to a similar strategy with regards to what to mention or not to mention when talking about it. And I wanted to speak to that for a moment before today's conversation and say that I too follow these conventions that have been set up conventions that allow a discourse about trust and yet preserve the the pleasures of discovery. I never go farther than what is commonly out there and for the most part speak of less than you'd regularly find reading about the book. That said, in the last 25 minutes, we dwell on an aspect of the book that while frequently mentioned elsewhere, if you yourself are particularly concerned about spoilers, You could listen to the vast majority of this conversation, one that is largely about form and about voice, and save the last 25 minutes until after you read the book. And we talk about form and voice because in a strange way, form and voice are so important to this book that they are almost characters unto themselves. Certainly, they are each very present forces that are continually shaping and reshaping building up and tearing down the story you were reading. So while it sometimes might seem like we aren't talking about the book, but circling it, we are somewhat paradoxically doing both. If you enjoyed today's conversation, and perhaps even past conversations with everyone from Jenny Urpenbeck and Alejandro Zambra to Teju Cole and Natalie Diaz, consider joining the Between the Covers community by becoming a listener supporter. Every listener gets a resource-rich email with each episode and can join the ongoing brainstorm of which writers to invite into the future. And there are a ton of other things available to choose from, from access to the bonus audio with readings and sometimes even craft talks or literary analysis and long-form conversations with translators to various collectibles from everyone from Ursula K. Le Guin to Nikki Finney. You can check it all out at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's conversation with Hernan Diaz. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effects in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel. Didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a
1: vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself.
0: Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, the novelist writer Hernan Diaz, was born in Argentina, but grew up in Sweden, speaking Swedish out in the world, until his family moved back to Argentina again at the age of nine. Diaz pursued a Bachelor's of Arts in literature at the University of Buenos Aires, moved to London in his 20s and went to King's College there for his master's degree, and then finally moved to New York, which he has called home for over 20 years, and where he pursued a doctorate in philosophy from New York University, taught at State University of New York, and where he is now associate director of the Hispanic Institute at Columbia University and managing editor of Revista Hispanica Moderna, a semi-annual peer-reviewed journal devoted to research in Hispanic literature and cultural studies. In 2012, he published the book Borges, History and Eternity, that explores, among other things, the very different way Borges is seen and situated within Latin America versus the rest of the world, how the Borges engaged with literary history and the Borges abstracted from history, the conceptual and universal Borges of metaphysical puzzles, can each be found in the opposite. But Hernan Diaz first became well known for his debut novel, despite its humble origins in the slush pile at Coffeehouse Press. This book, in the distance, received starred reviews from Library Journal and Publishers Weekly, had its praises sung by everyone from Roxane Gay to Lauren Groff, was longlisted for the International Dublin Literary Award, was a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award, and a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Fiction. The winner of the Soroyan International Prize and the Cabell Award for Best First Novel, and it was picked as a Best Book of 2017 by Feminist Press and one of the 20 Best Novels of the Decade by LitHub. Diaz went on to win a Whiting Award in 2019 and a Guggenheim in 2022. And in the Whiting Award citation, they say Hernan Diaz explores two kinds of wilderness. The immensely taxing newness of the American West, and the still forming interiority of Hokan, a Swedish immigrant desperate to find a way back home. It's the second that makes the first feel new. He does this in language that can be plain spoken and wildly, even cosmically evocative. Hokan's epic journey reminds us how the self is often hammered into existence by pain and longing. In the end, the reader understands the country's twin potential for horror and hope. So it's with no small amount of anticipation that we've awaited Hernan Diaz's follow-up to this tremendous entry into the world of novel writing. And despite the high expectations, he has dazzled us once again with a book entitled Trust that, like his last novel, engages with the mythology of America, this time not that of the American frontier, but of American finance. But unlike his last book, this polyvocal book, you could say, is a masterclass in voice, as well as being a formal and narrative puzzle, one that enlists the reader as a sort of textual detective. With starred reviews from Bookpage, Publishers Weekly, Kirkus, and Booklist, the latter says in its review, for all its elegant complexity and brilliant construction, Diaz's novel is compulsively readable, and despite taking place in the early 1900s, the plot reads like an indictment of the start of the 21st century, with its obsession with obscure financial instruments and unhinged capital accumulation. A captivating tour de force that will astound readers with its formal invention and contemporary relevance. Rachel Kushner adds... Trust glints with wonder and knowledge and mystery. Its plot lines are as etched and surreal as Art Deco geometry, while inside the architecture are people who feel appallingly real. This novel is very classical and very original. Balzac would be proud, but so would Borges. Finally, Marine Corrigan for NPR says, Literary fiction is a fantastic commodity in which our best writers become criminals of the imagination, stealing our attention and our very desires. Diaz makes an artistic fortune in trust, and we readers make out like bandits too. Welcome to Between the Covers, Hernan Diaz.
1: Hi, David. Such a pleasure to be here, and thank you for uh, that generous introduction. It's uh, it's It was a beautiful and uh, humbling essay almost. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Well, I think there are many ways we could connect your last book in the distance, a Western or anti-Western, and your latest book about capital and the American mythology around it. But it feels like most people seem to be talking about the ways they're different. And I do think the reading experience, what you ask of the reader, and the reader's relationship to the book as a book is very different. And I wanted to start here with that difference and see whether there is a relationship between subject and form. If something about switching from the American frontier to a question of the accumulation of capital prompts you to move from a book told from one point of view to a book that is not only polyvocal, but one that is a nested puzzle of sorts. So, so talk to us about money, um, how money has or hasn't shaped the form of the book, trust
1: starting with uh, the, the beginning of your question about the differences the formal differences between the, these two books uh, for me each project begins with uh, with a, an emotional texture that is almost uh, abstract and it's it's vaporous and and misty and uh, uh, not cohesive at all it's it's just that it's a feeling there's no other word for it. And within within the distance, it was a combination of of, of solitude and disorientation. Uh, later on, this all coalesced into the narrative that that became the book, and it turned out that that this uh, that this radical solitude is essential also to. Uh, certain version of the American dream, uh, uh, one that presents uh, the hero as an Adam-like figure uh, that 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 is almost beginning uh, history anew. Um, so individualism, I think, uh, happened to 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 be uh, it would become a common denominator also with with trust in but understood in a very different way but this but this glorification of the individual i find to be uh, very american uh, of course in the distance was a, was a, was a critique of that and and hopefully subverted it in in, in productive ways but uh, now speaking directly to form uh, i was very interested in this uh, in 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 hovering very closely around this body and this consciousness that is the protagonist, and I was uh, I was striving to create a sense of almost claustrophobia and and suffocation that that would be dissonant with uh the vastness and the openness of the landscape in which in which the protagonist finds himself so i was i was very interested in 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 this friction between um between an almost uh, solipsistic confinement and then this 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 vast sublime expansion of 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 the american uh, territory uh and and that that was sort of a formal uh drive for the book and reading it you you may also see how the book pendulates oscillates between um between this uh, very suffocating introspection and then the, the more expansive passages. And that, and that is part of the economy of the book to start introducing that term. Um, trust likewise began with, with a feeling. Um, I knew I wanted to write about wealth because it's, uh, it's such a constitutive part of the American imagination, you know. Um, I didn't know how, how to do it. Uh, And I also was interested in the emotional texture of what I imagined uh, came with extreme wealth. I I should make a footnote here and say, I'm not just talking about a privileged um, man here or a privileged family. Uh, I'm I'm talking about the richest man in America, and therefore probably the richest man in the world. Mm-hmm. This this is the kind of excess <laughs> that I was interested in imagining. Of course, I have no direct access to this experience, um, and and the emotional texture that I was referring to was not unlike in the distance. Come to think of it, was the sense of extreme confinement that I and removal that I imagine must come with that sort of. Uh, oh. uh, fortune um on the one hand and on the other hand the total and absolute reach that comes with wealth Mm. uh so this this uh opposition was was very productive to me then i started thinking about money and and reading about money and you know as you pointed out in in your generous introduction i i have a background in academia and in theory and in philosophy so you know i I started thinking about this almost in theoretical terms and uh and the first thing which almost uh threw me off the whole project was that i realized that money is and a fortune is made up of uh, uh many mediations like, there's nothing monolithic about it uh it's uh Uh, It's the multitude of laboring people that goes into it, a number of institutions, a number of social uh, contracts, uh, and uh, different forms of, I'm not trying to be a punster here, but different forms of trust too, you know, of of confidence um, uh, that, that go into a fortune. So it became very clear to me that it couldn't be narrated in the same way as in the distance which was this this very focused centered uh, point of view uh, this had to be uh the, it has to, it had to contain a modest multitude it had to be uh, uh th- there had there had to be a multiplicity here and and also because you know in in the in the in the myths that go into narrating the origin stories of a great for every great fortune is ill begotten. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind about that. uh, uh, It's every, every fortune is criminal. Uh, Therefore every fortune needs to surround itself by this legitimizing kind of, kind of, kind of narrative. And here's where voice comes in. Mm. Um, So I thought I, I wanted to play with, with the expectations that come with these very established voices that, that, that provide uh, legitimacy to a fortune and that sort of uh cleanse or clean it's 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 uh it's foundational uh myths
0: what you hinted at here and you've talked about elsewhere you're attracted to what you call highly fossilized narratives or and yeah. a desire to engage with fossilized narratives and subvert them and both of these books are are looking at the stories that america tells about itself um it seems contrary to the to your debut, where there are an innumerable stories told about the West and the frontier. There's just an, a vast number of narratives about the West uh, in all sorts of art forms and American expansion. You said that what piqued your interest about trust was actually the absence of stories about capital, and I was hoping you could talk about that because I can think of a, a lot of books about class, about wealth, about poverty. But you're talking about something different, uh, I think, and I I would be interested to hear um, about this absence you're seeing. Why story isn't being made? You've, you've mentioned that the industrialists themselves might be making stories, but why why book why books aren't making uh, stories the way they do in westerns and anti westerns?
1: I also saw a void in the in the western uh, as a genre too. I think again maybe there is a common denominator here we we think there are a lot of stories about the west we we think there are but like can you can you name uh, off the top of your head like five relevant western novels before the 50s mm-hmm. it's hard it's really hard we think of film of course which is immensely important But even even the the gestation of the Western as a genre is extremely late. It starts in 1902 or 03 with The Virginian by Owen Wister. That that is the acknowledged sort of starting point. And think of 1903, like the Civil War is over, the conquest of the West itself is over, you know, Native peoples have been uh, uh, decimated thoroughly. Uh, extensive sort of agriculture has been introduced. The, the landscape has been effectively tamed. It's over. In in short, it's over. You know, and it's only then when the Western is properly codified and structured uh, as a as a as a genre, right? this to me is already very interesting and then you have the you know anti-westerns but the novels against which those anti-westerns are written are not really like relevant they're not part of the conversation you know uh it was only last year or the year before last actually that the library of america sort of this venerable collection that Sort of canonizes uh, different American authors. It was only two years ago that they came out with a Western collection. Uh, it ultimately doesn't matter, but but I think it's an eloquent example of what I'm trying to say. It seems that only by adopting the prefix "anti" by negating itself, that the Western can be become sort of legit and become part of 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 the quote unquote highbrow conversation. Right? This to me is an interesting uh, phenomenon in itself, because we would expect that the Western would be the American sort of national genre. And it it just simply isn't, not in literature at all. Um, With money, there is something similar. Uh, Just as the, the Western is there to glamorize some of the darkest aspects of American history, you know, including genocide, One would also think that since money occupies this almost transcendental place in American culture, that there would be, you know, a vast uh, uh, canon, a vast corpus of literature fiction that revolves around money and money making. And again, you know, we would all be hard pressed to come up with that list. You know, we, we would have to rack our brains and you know, and maybe make some concessions, it's not immediately obvious and apparent what those books are. I found very few that to me are satisfactory. Uh, as you said, on the other hand, of course, uh, American literature has has been obsessed with class and, and sort of the corseted manners that that come with it and we have we have even sort of a almost a genre about that sort of the the novel of manners and and that and that's very important in 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 american literary history Um, there is also sort of uh a very rich uh let's call it american social realism sort of uh, and i would group there disparate authors such as, I don't know, Theodore Dreiser, John Steinbeck, Erskine Caldwell, uh, which deal with a, with a, the with a flip side of the narratives of, of excess, uh, sort of the, the 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 misery brought about by inequality. And then there's also, uh, I, I would say, a third set of novels that deal uh, with conspicuous consumption. Let's call it that, uh, to, to quote uh, Veblen. Um, they present themselves as critiques of of this world of excess, but I feel all of them or most of these books end up bedazzled by the very thing that they set out to, to critique. And, you know, I think there is there is a whole arc that goes maybe from Scott Fitzgerald to, I don't know, Brett Easton Ellis, for example. I, I don't know, and every everyone in between, but that's almost like the full century right there. In none of these three groups that I just sort of made up as, as I went uh, in, in none of these groups, there are novels that are about money making, you mm-hmm. know, uh, they all deal with the effects of money, with the symptoms of affluence or with a, or with a tragedy of, uh, of, uh, of exploitation. Um, but, but, but money is never made in these novels. Money is already there. Uh, and this is a this is a massive distinction. I wanted a novel about I wanted to write a novel about money making and and how once that astronomical amount of money is made, how its density, how its mass affects uh, the reality around it this this became the project
0: I, I love this distinction this idea that money is just around in all, in all these novels about wealth, and the questions that raises like what won't be spoken about and why and what culture is created in order to sort of preserve a silence around how the money arrives as maybe one last moment of of staying with the your your two books together um i wonder i wonder if this could be a spectral connection between the two books um that the accumulation of wealth by the wealthy people in trust is predicated on as you've just mentioned, um, the erasure of hidden and, and, and the hiding of labor, uh, whether that labor be literal slavery or wage slavery or the exploitation of the working poor in some fashion. But it is also very much connected, I would imagine, to the conquest and the settlement of the West, stolen land, resource extraction, and then the accumulation of wealth in centers of commerce, where the people who have it then live within a culture that doesn't just erase the means, but sort of disdains work and disdains uh, the notion of labor. So you don't speak about it because it's kind of gauche on aesthetic terms. Um, (laughs) Exactly. But maybe it isn't a coincidence that in your first book that the immigrant is walking west to east um, in your anti-western, that he's walking toward New York... Um, quite visibly, but also that the West perhaps is also possibly an unspoken ghost that's haunting the New York of trust. And I wondered if that's a too much of a stretch to suggest that there's a, a Western ghost um, unspoken in, in the latest book of commerce in, in America's biggest city. I don't
1: I don't think it's a stretch at all. And, you know, as I I didn't set out to write a book that would be sort of an ideological continuation of, you know, at all. That's not the way I work. It just really happened. And maybe it speaks to hidden interests that are that are a, sort of a form a continuum uh, in my mind. But uh, it was an intentional Uh but i have very little to add to what you said because i i i think it's all correct and 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 i agree i think the although romanticized the 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 push west was was not was not just an adventure you know it 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 was an extractivist endeavor that that utterly commodified nature and uh brutalized it uh it in order specifically to fuel the machinery of capital that had started with the industrial revolution. Uh, That's, that's what it was. That's what it was. I mean, gold is slightly a different story because gold is such a weird commodity. And, uh, you know, I think, I think it's uh, above my pay grade to really discuss the specificity of gold because it's really super complex and it's, it's entanglement with monetary policy in the United States is fascinating. Um, So I would leave gold slightly aside for a moment, but, but the rest from, 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 from water to pastures, to other minerals, to, to, to human labor, uh, you know, uh, that was the purpose of, of the push uh, to the West. Uh, Absolutely. It wasn't out of some sort of, uh, sort of, curiosity or sort of uh, it, it wasn't well-intended naturalists and poets who went out there it was all about money and uh, obviously and uh, and now we see this this machinery running full steam ahead in in interest and um um so in that in that regard there is there is without without a question uh, a continuity between between those two things and i think uh labor in both of those cases has been used the word gauche, uh, which I think, which I think is amazing in this context because also when, when I said that money is, is there, it's never made in most of American literature, I think it has to do with almost like a puritanical kind of prudishness, uh, which is very strange because on the one hand, there is this Calvinistic sense that, you know, uh, uh, material fulfillment in this world is a sign of your redemption in the next one uh so there is that which gives wealth this this literally transcendental uh dimension but at the same time it's just not something that's talked about because because yes because it's almost impolite so there is a priggishness there around it as well and and we see this going back to manners. Since we we're talking about priggishness, you see this in you know in uh, very clearly in Edith Wharton and, and also in Henry James. That you know that uh, uh, there is there is no there really isn't labor for the most part. We could we could think of a few exceptions, uh, but uh, in some of their stories, uh, artists are. are one of those exceptions. There are a lot of working artists in in in, in their in their stories, but um, for the most part, uh, yeah, money is simply not talked about. And and Wharton, in her autobiography, A Backward Glance, you know. Uh, says this in, in 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 so many words like the, the in in her in her set to use a word from from the time uh in her set in in her world you you just don't work it's 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 frowned upon mm. it's frowned upon and you certainly also by the way you don't if if you're even more so if you're a woman you don't you don't make art you don't you don't write she was she was discouraged from writing yeah.
0: um well eventually i i Want to make an argument that the book isn't about money at all? That it could have been set in a very different right. climate, one without money, and many of its central animating questions could still exist. But I'm not ready to make the argument yet. Um, but f- at first, I wanna I wanna talk about the non financial meaning of the title Trust. When people think of the term today financially, they probably think of putting money in a trust or a trust fund. But in the in the context of your book which does span a century from 1880 to the 1980s, but whose lifeblood is the 20s and 30s, in that context, a trust would be a monopoly and that we might, we might have antitrust laws, which, uh, which we used to have, which would break up companies to restore competition. Um, but let's talk about trust in the emotional sense and how you call into question the contract between the reader and the writer uh, the same contract most writers try to foster and nurture. <laughs> that was a good. That was a good ending to that <laughs> setup. <laughs> um,
1: so you're you're basically calling me a con man in a very elegant
0: way. <laughs> not, re- not really. <laughs> yeah. Some of no, no, my no, favorite. I, no. Most of my favorite yeah. books actually do what you do. Um, i'll say one thing before you answer this that i really love and i just want to stress this because we're talking we're going to talk a lot about form but um like i Great. think of your book when i think of like alice monroe or philip roth not that your writing is anything like either one of them but they're rarely ever considered experimental writers but they're wildly experimental writers and i think part of the reason why we don't think of them as experimental writers is because they're also really immersive writers. They you like you go inside of their books and so you might not be entirely aware when Monroe does this crazy thing with time or the entire story is backstory, all these violations of of the typical rules. But I but I wonder like like I feel like reading your book, even though we're gonna go and like the structure of it, that um each of the four sections is super immersive on its own so even though we're going to talk about the strange ways they're related to each other you could read Trust as an enjoyable ride without being the textual detective that you suggest you could be if you wanted to and I think that I I love that sweet spot personally where I feel like um, the reading experience is very inviting and at the same time you're rewarded if you're willing to go farther than just the reading yeah, of it.
1: That's that's great. I mean, there's so many things to to address in 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 what you just said. I, I you know I don't think it's a question. I I, I think it's I think it's a, I think it's a great intervention with which I I fully agree. And as you were talking about experimental fiction, uh, that that we don't realize is experimental, and I, I can think of I, I can think of other authors who who I would put in that category too which now I love I hadn't thought of it. I and this is totally off the cuff. I would say we don't think of them as experimental because the experiment has succeeded. Mm. <laughs> one could one could claim that that a lot of the experimental fiction a lot of the experimental fiction that I love that we that that is ostensibly experimental is because the experiment is still, in, in a way in progress, right? And th- and that's 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 the nature of experimentation. Experimentation is based on repetition and and right, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and and it's the term that I quibble with in fiction, right? Because it, exper- experimental that is that that that, that adjective, I, I take issue with it. Uh, although again, I understand what it refers to, and I and I align I myself mostly. With writers whom you would call, uh, without flinching, experimental. But if we think about about the word itself, it it has to do well. It, it's a word that comes from science, so so that that already to me puts me on high alert, um, because there are epistemological problems that that immediately uh, you immediately inherit when you when you take on a scientific term without without. Without caution, um, the first problem is the idea of repetition that I ju- that I just meant. I mean, what defines an experiment is that you should be able to perform it over and over again. This already goes against the nature of experimental fiction; like mm-hmm. it's always sort of one of a kind, and it's like a like a, a weird bird uh, <laughs> that that has, yeah. cannot be repeated literally. So, so that would be my first objection. The second objection, which is much more substantial is that experiment is sort of a, a, a derivative of experience. It's 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 sort of a it's a it's it's not a proper experience, it's a controlled experience, it's a fake experience, it's an artificial experience. That 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 is what an experiment is, because you need to be able to measure everything that's going on within that artificial experiment. So you set the parameters for that experience. And I feel that, again, with many air quotes, experimental literature, what it does is it gives us an experience. Like, I, I, you know, the more successful those pieces of writing are, the more intense the experience is. Uh, uh, and uh, so, it, and, and there's nothing fake or controlled about it. It's almost the opposite. They're always, almost always out of control. Uh, and and the third objection I, I would raise to the notion of experimental literature is that that experiment in science tends toward some kind of um, measurable truth, quantifiable truth, some, some kind of final assertion. And I think in, uh, right, you're, you're trying to establish uh, uh, an empirical fact. That's why you make the experiment to begin with. And I think Experimental literature does just the opposite. It just keeps opening the realm of the imaginable instead of narrowing it down. Mm. Um, so I preface this by saying it was a bit of a quibble. It became a bit of a rant.
0: <laughs> so... oh not at all. but I'll just add I'll just this makes me think of a conversation many years ago with Talia Field, who wrote the book Experimental Animals, where she looks at the rise of vivisection and. France, and the influence it had on Zola's experimental what he considered experimental oh, sure. um though i'm I super love this idea that that the the analogy breaks down because uh, of the non reproducibility of the experimental art, yes, let me take this question further, so if we're talking about i mean part of this book is this examination of of this contract between the reader and the writer. Um, oh, yeah, that's where we were. Yeah, Sorry, no, I that's a, okay. Yeah, uh, it's okay. <laughs> uh, but you explore not only the relationship of history and fiction, but also fiction's effect on history. And that's sort of the way you structure trust. Um, trust is four books by four different authors, It begins with a novel, followed by a memoir draft, of the quote-unquote real person who was portrayed in the novel but wants to set the record straight, and then a memoir, and finally a diary. Uh, This isn't exactly a a book of frame narratives, but because some of these four books live inside or partially inside the other books, uh, that they're partially nested, and also because we have four different authors, we are always aware of the book as a whole, as a constructed thing, even though you're not a voice, there's no authorial narrative voice. Um, we're very aware of you, uh, the creator, I think, um, in your absence. Um, I would like to spend some time with this. I'm sad to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) You're sad to hear that? I wanted to vanish. But you do. I mean, I guess that goes back. And this is a paradox because I, each of the, I feel like each of the books is immersive, but, but thinking of the books together, the four books, you can't help, but think of the questions of why are these four books next to each other, the way they are. Um, but I, and that's where I wanted to talk about frames and your interest in frames, because I think they create a lot of generative paradoxes like the one we've just discussed or touched on just now. For instance, people may notice that we haven't really talked about the plot of your book yet. And in fact, I, I, I want to spend time actually setting up frames outside the book first. Uh, some, some psychological frames, but also some historical and philosophical frames. So I want to move farther and farther away from your book in a certain sense. But I also think weirdly by framing your book and then framing that frame that in a way we will be moving closer to what your book is about. So in the most abstract sense talk to us about narrative frames either in in relationship to this question of trust or not. But frames is a very are very present in in your writing in well in both of your books and also in some of your writing outside of your books
1: thank you for inviting me to speak about frames in the in in an abstract sense that's that's always a good way for me to start i'm i'm very fascinated with frames because it's it's a way that literature has to construct its own referential context and free itself from the supposed obligation to uh interact or mimic or reflect uh, uh, a referential reality um th- this is what draws me to framed uh, narratives and again it's not that i set out to oh i'm gonna write a frame that it happens to me it's just the way my the literary part of my brain works is is is, is it's just drawn to to that to that device to call it somehow so what I, what I like about it then, it's that it, it emphasizes sort of the, the autonomy of literature, how it can become a self-contained, self-sufficient sort of realm. Uh, and cr- even to the point of creating its own outside. This, mm-hmm. is, this is what to me is so wondrous about, about frame narratives, that, that it's literature creating a reality for itself. How? With more literature.
0: It's also interesting in connection to ex- your what you said about experimental. I mean, if we think of Don Quixote as the first, as as one place you could point to for the first novel, mm-hmm. um, it is also very po- postmodern, for lack of a better word. Like it's very like aware of itself and framed, and we're we're reading the translation of of something from another. Like it's an Arabic translation, right? And, yes. And the second book purportedly he wrote when someone else was in after the first book was um continuing the story and so he wanted to go back and continue the story um and 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 uh quixote becomes aware of his own reputation in the second book and so the first book he's trying to create the dream and the second book he's he's confronted with people who have a a a notion of his mythos when when well not not only
1: that in in this in the second part don quixote also holds the first part, like he reads the first part about himself, yeah, and that is this is prompted because I think in 1610 there was a an apocryphal continuation of the novel written penned by one uh, I think Avellaneda. It was never. It's to this day it's not known who that was. So then Cervantes went and wrote the second part, part two, which is not unlike trust in a way, just to to undo this 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 apocryphal continuation of of his of his book, and yes, indeed you have you have the main character reading uh, about himself in in what potentially could become like a Mobius strip like if he keeps reading long enough, he will get to the point where he is reading that he's reading, that he's reading yeah <laughs> so yeah, I mean don quixote is a is a big presence in my life and uh, and a very important um book book to me but um in in this case i feel that the the frame narratives and perhaps now we we can go back to the question you asked about trust and the emotional dimension of trust uh the the emotion the excuse me the uh the frame narratives uh serve not only just just sort of a a, a plot purpose because i feel some of the big reveals in the book have to do with who is speaking and when we thought that maybe perhaps someone else was, was speaking and, and how these four parts, as you said, interact with each other. So, so the, the, I think part of, I hope part of the reward uh, of, of reading this book has to do with playing with those shifting frames. It's not strictly speaking, a framed narrative, but it, but it plays with, with, Reference and and uh, in, in ways that resembled uh, resembles frame narratives, but what I was saying, circling back, is that I feel that in this case, this device serves not only sort of a diegetical purpose of, of of moving the story forward, but if it's not too excessive, also almost like an ethical purpose because this this is at the core of 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 what the project was. Uh, who has a voice and who is denied a voice, mm. and this is why voice is—it's not just an exercise in ventriloquism or in or in like it's not hopefully like a like a vaudeville act, like see how many impersonations I can do. It has it has to do rather than with uh, it has to do rather with 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 questioning. You know who in history has been given a megaphone. And who in history has been gagged? Mm-hmm. And, and, and what do we hear when we hear those amplified voices? What trust, and here we've finally arrived, what trust do we place in these voices just by mere virtue of, of, of their being amplified? Uh, it seems almost that we're preconditioned to trust a voice just because it's loud. We, we all do this all the time with authority, Right. Uh, whether we want or not or whether we feel foolish after we've done it or it's 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 a deep deep response that we humans have to respond to this rhetorical loudness and be subdued by it so this is something that i that i wanted to explore and and this and this megaphone or this loudness it's not something that we experience obviously in terms of volume but it, it's a loudness that i see in history like history relies on this kind of, um uh self-assuredness of the voice that presents uh these uh, uh uh these these narratives as matters of 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 historical record when they are very often historians tell us this all the time when they are indeed very often simply that narratives competing with other narratives right yeah um so uh, uh, hence uh, uh, the voices, hence the, the emphasis on trust. And as, as, as you were pointing out, I, I do firmly believe that we, we as readers engage, enter into uh, very specific contracts when we read uh, any kind of text. Uh, we expect a level of truth from the label on a prescription bottle that uh, we don't expect from, I don't know, a fairy tale. And we assume that something we find in a history book to be more robustly anchored in in referential uh, accuracy than a science fiction story. Um, so all of this was very interesting to me. And, and I, I was hoping, I was sort of aiming to invite the reader to to question those assumptions that they have upon entering any kind of text and to do so it was of course vital to to shift the frame uh-huh. it was also vital to shift the voice just to just to show you you know what 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 kind of expectations do you walk into a novel which is how the book begins uh, it begins with a novel within the novel and, and then you have a, a sort of a real life uh, a powerful man telling his own story, and how how do you interact with that? Keeping in mind you just emerged from a novel, what are the differences you will you find, and so on and so forth? It sounds a little didactical, and uh, when I put it this way, but it's hopefully not the experience when you read
0: it. No, not at all. Very far from it. But but I want to. I'm going to stubbornly keep us in the abstract for another couple moments. You have this incredible lecture you gave last year, the Fincy Contini Lecture at the Whitney Humanities Center at Yale, that you can watch online, and it's also available to read as an essay called The Heart of Fiction, Storytelling, Experience, and, and Truth. And there, there are many things I love, I'd love, i love to touch on that you address in this talk, but to begin with, I was hoping we could spend a moment with the three ways you, you categorize uh, narratives, the field, the, the window, and the watcher, The field being the most common, I think, books that try to get you to forget that there is a frame um, where you're on the field of action. Uh, And then the window being books that make you very conscious of the frame, of engaging with its own form, where you're always aware that you're reading words on a page. And then you have this third one, the watcher, which you call a hybrid form of being, of being outside the frame and inside the frame as a character of being a textual being and an extra literary being at the same time, I don't know if the Watcher relates to trust, but I would love to hear a little bit more about the Watcher because it's 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 the one that seems the hardest to grasp, I guess.
1: It is hard to grasp. I, I should I should preface this by saying it's from a preface. <laughs> this tripartite distinction comes from. Uh... I mentioned here Henry James's uh, preface to the New York edition, I think in 1912 to the portrait of a lady where he famously speaks about the house of fiction as a, as a, as a way to sort of exemplify what point of view is. So, you know, he says the house of fiction has, has many windows and outside it there is, there's is this field or a garden and, you know, what, what viewer X sees from window A is not what viewer Y may see from window B, you know. Um, So I I took this distinction, to me, what was interesting about it was that uh, there is, there is this, there, there are these three main points of reference when you think about point of, and I'm very fascinated by the conundrum of point of view in fiction. It's, it's something I think about a lot and, and it, it, it shapes my writing in, in decisive ways. I, I feel that sometimes my projects take shape around certain point of view questions. Um, I, I care a lot about it. I think it's a very, it's a profoundly moral question for literature because it has to do with knowledge uh, and how it's administered and how it, it has to do with power, mm-hmm. uh, your power as a narrator. What, what do you let the reader know and when and how uh, and this is why I, I feel like an enormous sense of betrayal when I had a a certain kind of restricted point of view that then leaps into an omniscient kind of uh, narrator just to create some kind of uh, coup as some, some kind of uh, uh, cool reveal you know that 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 angers me very much um, but going back to to James I should also say very very quickly i um, I don't believe in typologies not not even this little one that I made up for this lecture I, I I don't think literature or art works that way I think it's a I think it's all a very happy mess I think there aren't any rules there shouldn't be any rules and I think uh, you know taxonomies are ultimately not productive having Undermine myself thoroughly in this fashion, I would proceed to say that I thought of three kind of categories. Um, first are those novels that take place on Henry James's garden. Uh, and we as readers are in the garden with the characters, and we kind of forget that we are at home reading at the famous suspension of disbelief, right? We are We are there in the, in the scene. We are with Napoleon's army in war and peace. Uh, We are, you know, whatever it is. And this is the realist novel or what the realist novel aspires to be, you know, and of course there's a wide spectrum of variations and exceptions. And it's, it's just a typology to try to think of formal issues. It's not a, uh, an exhaustive classification. Um, The, the, but then, if you, if you take a step back, you may see the frame that contains the garden, right? And that means already that there are two different uh, levels of reality, whether it's a framed narrative or not, right? Uh, you have the, the people out having tea in the garden, as, as uh, Portia of the Lady begins. It begins with, a, with, a, with tea time. <laughs> so you, you, you have the people having tea, but then you also have uh, the frame. You have maybe even the, the the window. Maybe even the the window treatments. You know the curtains. And uh, and we could, if you extend this the simile or this metaphor, we could we could say that this is also language. It's through which we see the scene. Is through words, through language, through syntax, through through form, right? Mm-hmm. That to me is the window. So I, I, and I, and I think that uh, there is also a robust canon of, of, of of literature that engages with that certain sense of opacity. It's like when you're looking out the window and you look more at the glass than what is outside and you see maybe even the little bubbles or the condensation on the glass, or maybe just the glass, but Mm -hmm. the, but, but the field will be out of focus because you're looking at the glass. Um, and uh, uh, and that to me is something beautiful uh, when it happens in literature. It's it's form pausing and and reflecting on itself, and ultimately the the awareness of of this being a verbal artifice and encouraging that awareness, not trying to do away with it or to conceal it. Which the sort of the garden narrative uh, does it best. It's best to do uh, to to. To not allow you to remember that this is uh so here we see the, the 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 strings, uh the puppets uh strings. And then the third presence, as you say, is it's the uh, the third instance, sorry, is the hardest to define, which is the watcher. Because James says, you know, there's a watcher, there's the window, there's the field. He doesn't phrase it this way, but the these are, these are the elements of his image, right? The strange thing here is that if the field is completely the realm of, of fiction uh, in, in a way that aspires to be completely kind of immediate. I don't think it ever is, but that's the aspiration. And if the frame or the window is the awareness that, that this is artifice and, and sort of almost relishing in that awareness, um, the third instance has to do with almost literature turning around and facing you, the reader. Looking outside the realm of literature itself if 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 the second instance means looking farther into literature the the, the second instance is that that viewer uh, almost turning around and looking outside literature uh, and and there are very specific instances where this happens uh, and and it 's weird when it happens. I'm thinking, for instance, of Clarice Lispector in the, *In the Hour of the Star*, or uh, Muriel Sparks' first novel. Uh, uh, David Markson, who is a favorite of mine, does it a lot. When, when you know, suddenly, let's pick Markson, he mentions himself as the author is tired now. You know, for example, mm. uh, the author hasn't really had a proper meal in a long time. If I say it's a hybrid presence, it's because it's clearly a textual uh, being. Uh, David Markson, after all, is dead, for example. Um, but but there is there is a magnetic force, for lack of a better kind of comparison, that, that pulls those words toward the outside of the text they can never leave the text i understand this fully but but there is something in in this whole maneuver if you like of 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 this voice turning away from the text and back onto you who are reading there is something there there's a gesture there that aims impossibly impossibly hopelessly to bridge literature and life. And that to me is uh, when it works, it's incredible.
0: You've made me understand it. You made me understand the watcher in a way that I didn't understand, but in preparing for today, I tried to make meaning and I went through, I think I went like down a wrong alley, but I wonder if it's still of, um, I'm still curious about it, not because it's correct, but knowing that you'd studied with Derrida, um, I, um, I was just looking into his writing about frames, and he, in the book Truth in Painting, writes about literal physical frames. This is how I tried to make sense of the watcher, and I just was curious what you think. But you know, in, in Truth in Painting, he, he says that if you're standing in one position, the frame around a painting might seem like it's more part of the wall or part of the room or part of the furniture. And in another position where you're standing... It might feel like it's part of the art. But when some people describe deconstruction, they describe it as seeking neither to reframe art um, with a more truthful frame, nor to suggest an absence of a frame, but almost that the frame is in the painting. Because the painting couldn't be a painting. Maybe as you suggested earlier, it's creating the it's creating the object of art, the the painting is produced by the frame um, but i i guess i wondered if moving this sense of moving from place to place and then the status of the frame changing with the movement that's how i was that's that was my um that was my way of trying to figure out the watcher but it sounds like that's entirely different than what you're talking about
1: i haven't I haven't read that uh that uh, derrida in a long in a long time i haven't read any derrida in a long time and i i think it's it's because I had to teach myself also how to write more lucidly in order to really become a, a proper fiction writer. And I think I I got so enmeshed in that intentional abstruseness that, that comes with with certain theory talk. When I was done, I was done because I, I, I found it and I think Derrida would love this rhetorically poisonous. He has this whole thing about the pharmacon. So he would, he would, he would be okay with my saying this, not that I, <laughs> not that I care or not that he would, he would care either to be honest, but, um, uh, but I, I, I did find that kind of register poisonous to me. I, I still sort of, I still I still sort of do I' my my concern as you were as you were talking about the frame, the frame I was thinking that you know the, the classic example here would be las meninas by Velazquez where you have you know it's him painting the scene but there is also a mirror that looks at the onlooker you the person looking at the painting but you can't see what's on Velazquez's canvas within the painting there is this whole bizarre and you know Foucault has written about everyone has written about this what I fear is that this this conversation is taking the whole image of of the the watcher or the onlooker? I'm a little concerned that it could all be mistaken with, uh, uh like a literary uh, trompe l'oeil, sort of sort of a a trick, mm-hmm. uh, a sleight of hand, or a. And it's it's really it's not a gimmick. What I'm hinting at, it's not that at all. It's a. Uh, it, it has more to do with ultimately with what we think of mimesis and representation as a whole and what we think literature should do in regards to these matters and it, in, in its relationship to reality. And I, and, I, and I think, and this is at the core of trust, I think, for too long, we, we have been wondering about how literature can adequately imitate reality this this is the question i mean at least since plato right uh, uh, and and this is why he expelled the the the, po- the poets from his ideal republic because if we're in a world uh, in which everything every object that you see is a, is a flawed um, replica of of an idea right so the the chair or a t- or the table is just a it's just a it's just a fake of the ideal of the ideal tableness or chairness so then why socrates says why would you why would you add yet another layer and look how interesting we're back into layers and tiers why would you why would you add another layer of fakeness to the already existing fakeness. So you have the ideal table, which is inaccessible. Right. Then you have the ta- the tangible table, which is fake because it's a derivative realization of that idea. And then on addition to that, in addition to that, you have the poets or the painter's table, right? He speaks specifically of poets, uh, which is the, the, the fake of a fake. So for too long, again, I think we, we've been wondering about these things, about how how literature can adequately represent reality. And I think it's obviously a massively important question, and we're not done; we will never be done asking ourselves that. But I, but with trust in particular, I, t- I tried to flip the question and say, and try to think about how literature may affect reality, how literature may shape reality the the reality uh, around us because I think it does and I think going back to framed narratives I think I think that is that is a that is a very graspable example of literature creating a reality for itself that is what a framed narrative is it's it's literature creating a reality for itself and I think this can easily be extrapolated to a much larger uh, sense and with deeper implications and and to our experience out in the world, and I think it's a truism to say that we, you know, our our worldview is shaped by narratives. It's it's totally obvious. I don't think it demands proof of or or evidence of any kind. Uh, yet I think I think there is more work to be done in that regard. Uh, not to conceive of literature as some mere sort of epiphenomenal froth of, of, of this real substance, but rather the reverse. How is what we have come to call reality really shaped by, by the stories we tell uh, daily, you know, and that, and that, we and that we choose to trust not to yeah. like, plug the book in any way, but it's like <laughs> no, the pertinent way to say it. Yeah.
0: I, I I feel like we're right on the edge of, I want to spend some time with the way fiction affects reality but before just before we do, um I mean you, you've already talked about what you talked about and also in the essay that I reference about what you call the referential fetish of fiction and it's insecure <laughs> it's insecurity about itself. It's either all imagination and thus useless and irrelevant, or it yeah. is relevant because of its utility. But you suggest that it has a, a very a significant and enduring relationship to the truth, but that it's just an entirely different one. So it's not like you're saying, well, fiction isn't related to the truth. You're saying it is. It is has a different one. And I, I wondered if you could speak to that just for a moment before we we get into the details of trust the novel. Like, what? How would you say? I mean, you quote other people who sort of touch on this too, like you quote Le Guin's "Left Hand of Darkness" introduction, and um, but oh yeah, but you're suggesting you're suggesting that there is something that fiction does. Let me put it this way, and and let's think of
1: history again, uh, because I think it I think it's a pertinent example here. Um, as we as we said uh, a while ago, we've been shown, and we are shown repeatedly, that that history is very often an ideological construct. And, and, and we, have, we have been taught to have a productive distrust or to revise it constantly, which, which I think is a very uh, uh, necessary exercise that we should all engage in. Um, yet when you put history and fiction together, it seems that obviously most, most of us would say, well, history is the one that is sort of closer to uh, truth, or has or has has a tighter relationship to it, whereas fiction is make believe, you know, harmless play. Yet, as we just said, history is the object of constant revision, and literature, on the other hand, over the last whatever, almost three millennia in the West, which is the only thing I can speak to, more or less, right. I think has provided a pretty solid record of what it means to be a human being on planet earth. It has come pretty close to Mm -hmm. at least a sliver of truth of what the human experience is, regardless of, you know, our definition of truth is, 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 is it changes all the time. It shifts, but, but I, for one, if I were to look for for that i would i would go first to fiction and second to other supposedly more fact-based discourses so i think this is one way in which in which in which fiction is tied to truth uh and often overlooked and sort of shunned and 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 pushed aside as you know some some sort of 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 mere entertainment or or perhaps fables with 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 some sort of pedagogical purpose but i think that um again over and over literature has been able to show us to some extent what love what loss what uh grief and rage and disorientation and 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 guilt (laughs) uh Feel like and and what and I stress also feel which is mm-hmm. you, you know and the emotional dimension is usually uh, excluded from 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 the from the pursuit of truth and I think I think that's that's a that's a terrible that's a terrible mistake. So again, I, th- I think that literature has has a pretty decent track record of showing what our experience on Earth. Is like. And that's why we go back to yeah. these texts, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and it's paired. And I should say this because it's also important, just as emotion is important. I think the aesthetic dimension, the 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 sheer pleasure, the aesthetic experience we we, we get from reading, uh, is something we we can't obtain from from any other form of experience. And I think therein lies the value of literature in that it provides us with uh, an, an experience itself of truth, of, of beauty and uh, and uh, uh, and uh, and I don't think I don't think I don't think any other art form can can do that in the way that literature does it because I think the prime material of literature, and this is something that I that I, mentioned in that essay that you referenced. The prime material of literature is meaning, uh, right? I mean, if, if you're a painter, you have color. If you're a musician, you have sound. If you're a filmmaker, you have light, and you have costumes. You have uh, in, in literature, what you're ultimately working with is meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and this is why I feel that literature is, strictly speaking, so meaningful.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for your your patience with me in in sort of staying and circling around trust for so long. Because I, I want to spend some time now with with trust itself. Um, if we think of this question that you've mentioned about how fiction influences history, um, how fiction influences life, uh, that's not just a subject of trust. It's also enacted in trust because the book begins with the. The one, the first book in the four book set is the only ostensibly fictional book of the four, the standalone novel called Bonds. That as your not as your novel progresses, greatly. Infl- I would
1: quibble with that, but no, okay. I,
0: no, so would I. Um, I would, yeah, okay, yeah, but All right. it's the book that calls itself. Let's say it is ostensibly. the book that calls okay. itself fiction, um, and that that fiction greatly influences the so-called non-fictional three books that follow it, um, even though that author is never in the book. So so talk, talk to us about this novel, Bonds in its own right, but also in light of your interest in fiction as an actor in the world at large, um, how Bonds, in a way, creates real, na- quote-unquote, real narrative inside of your book.
1: Yeah. Uh, Bonds was... Uh... A joy to write. It's the first book of the four books that compose the the, the entire novel that I wrote, and it contains the whole story, uh, albeit very dis- in a very distorted fashion and full of gaps and lacuna and uh, and uh, inaccuracies, which I would sort of take note of in order to correct them or or fill the blanks in in later sections of the of the novel. Uh, it is written in this slightly decadent tone. You know, it's a it's a novel written in the mid '30s, but it sounds a little bit earlier. It sounds like a turn of the century voice, and I wanted this outdatedness. Um, uh, I wanted it because I, you know, to my mind, it worked that the author would be slightly decadent, and I also, I don't know, I just felt like writing like that. <laughs> you know, a lot a lot of it happens that way too, and um, it you. You rightly said that the author, the fictional author of this novel, whose name is Harold Vanner. Um, I, I looked, I looked for names forever, and I couldn't find a good name. I, I wrote part of it. I was in New England when I was writing this, and I, I would go to these little cemeteries in these small towns and look at tombstones, looking for good kind of New England names. <laughs> I could, I couldn't find any, so I I, I just made it up, uh, Harold Vanner. Uh, Vanner is not a, a, a real name, but I, it sounded right. Um, and what I love about Harold Vanner is that he never appears in the book, as you, as you just said. I mean, the whole book happens because of him, because he writes this novel called Bonds and people in, in real life, quote unquote, um, React to it, and and it sets the whole plot in motion. And there, there were sort of in in notes that I took toward the novel, I had, I had, uh, I had him appear. I had Ida, uh, the secretary who is who is the narrator of the third part, look him up in in he would live in Long Island someplace, and she would go and find him, and they would meet. But then I I really liked the idea of 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 him being this one of the great protagonists of the of the book. And never really and and not having a body uh in the book and speaking of bodies I, th- I think that this this first part bonds is very disembodied uh as as a narrative uh and and that is very intentional the tone is very kind of hovering it's very removed it's 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 at an arm's length at all at, at most of most of the time uh, sometimes it closes in a little bit but there are no physical descriptions in in that part and that was a conversation with with my editor like hey <laughs> no physical descriptions I said I, I'm very I'm very aware, I'm, I'm well aware of that there's no dialogue except for one line um, because I wanted to create this this utter sense of removal and, and, a, and a world again that, that almost had no bodies that, that were just the ideas of these characters and the progression and the novel makes makes a makes a very pronounced progression until in the end we are very much inside a body uh, a body that is furthermore in pain uh, and we're inside a mind and so so we, we we start from from a great height in a way and then we we really descend into into physicality and, and, and selfhood in a way that we are intentionally deprived of in the in the first book.
0: So so when you say the novel progresses, you mean your novel, not Harold Vanner's novel.
1: <laughs> no, it, thank you for the distinction. No the trust, not not bonds. No bonds. Bonds. The Harold Vanner novel remains in this kind of hovering yeah. Uh, place. Yeah, uh, very much intentionally.
0: Well, one of, one of the things I really enjoyed when you were touring for your debut was how you wanted to place yourself in a long tradition of writers who wrote about the West but actually didn't know anything about it or very little about it. <laughs> and you were you were citing like Puccini's western opera and and Brecht's yeah. opera and Borges' stories about American outlaws and also of course spaghetti westerns in film. And none of them are really going for representational reality. It's, uh, the facts right. are often wrong, but it's sort of beside the point, as long as they sort of get a little bit of the decorative uh, um, aspect correct. Um, but you also note that America welcomed these stories and and worked them into the myth of the West, that even America itself, it was beside the point to America the representational aspect, as long as it was could be used in a way to sort of self valorize, and you suggest that this foreignness is part of the Western genre in sort of this weird way, and you even point to uh, where the Western, the first Western, might actually be foreign—that it was embedded in an early Sherlock Holmes crime procedural—and so the first Western That's
1: might my pet theory, yeah, yeah,
0: that the first Western might not actually be an American narrative. Um, which weirdly might make it more of an American narrative. Um, totally. But um, I guess I wanted to talk about foreignness as it plays a role um, in the American myth of, of capital or whether it plays a role because there's definitely foreignness in the book. We have the wife of the industrialists' uh, mental health deterioration and they they go to a Swiss sanatorium um, the Ghostwriter comes from a family of Italian uh, immigrant anarchists. Yes. Um, immigration and otherness are always sort of at the margins of this story, no matter how hermetic the narrative around capital tries to be. Um, so I wondered if you could talk about foreignness in trust and whether it has a similar paradoxical relationship to the real as as you suggested with the Western. That to engage with the myth of capital, you need to know a little about it in an embodied way on the ground. The way that you you don't need to know much about the West to write about the West. Um, is there is there an element of of is that element of foreignness to you essential to what you're writing about? Um, as you write about America in New York and this this family of uh, one of the wealthiest families in the world. So
1: I, I I believe your your question was somewhat two faced in a, in in a way. Uh, first, you mentioned uh, how I made it a point to uh, single out the the writers who had uh, uh, addressed the American West without ever having been there, and I put myself in in that in that little tradition myself because I made it a point not to go to these places when I was writing about it because. You know, looping back to our previous conversation, I, I think that literature is free from those or should, ought to be free from those constraints. And there is there is the work of the imagination that I'm very that, I, that I'm very protective of. I don't want to I don't want to straitjacket it with 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 factual overload. Um, and I think that that kind of uh, uh, removal from from the topic also applied to trust because I don't I, as you said I come from sort of a, a PhD in the humanities. I'm not I, I don't come I don't have any background in finance at all. So uh so I had to teach myself what was uh, uh how, how this world worked and actually come to think of it now speaking with you it wasn't as different as the Western in in as much as so many writers create the illusion of the West just by dropping certain kind of le- lexical keys, or by, by resorting to certain like contextual cliches. You can just as easily, you could do that with money. If you know which terms to mention that seem to be written in sort of some kind of financial lingo it's easy enough, I think, to create a superficial, superficial illusion of, of the fact that you're representing somewhat accurately this, this world. I didn't do exactly that with trust. What I, what I did discover, though, was as I read about monetary policy, financial instruments, uh, uh, history of the markets, and so on and so forth, was that this discourse was intentionally abstruse. There's this... Uh, Economist, American economist uh, called Paul Romer. He's a Nobel laureate in economics, and one of his papers is uh, about this term he coined uh, that is uh, called mathiness. And what he points out in this paper, which I could follow only up to a point, uh, <laughs> because it does get uh, 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 you know very technical very fast. But the the main premise is that. Uh, of course, there are certain aspects of, of economics that are deeply embedded in mathematics. No, nobody can deny that, that, that would be absurd. But it's equally true that some aspects of finance and, and economic theory uh, are a matter of uh, consensus, right? Of, of, of politics, policy, and and debate, right? And there are certain economists who, who sort of envelop. Their uh, their arguments in this mathiness, in in this sort of fake uh, mathematical tone, to give it the aura of objectivity, thus bypassing the the consensus moment and and presenting this as an idea that can only be legitimate after a discussion. Uh, you can bypass this by suggesting or pretending that uh, all of this is uh, framed by by some kind of mathematical argument. Um, I learned about this term mathiness after writing my novel, but I experienced mathiness as I was reading for the novel huh. all the time. And that to me was a very interesting thing because it's it's so obviously a power play. It's, it's by design, the, the, the effect is to uh, make people like you or me think that we can't. That this is all beyond our grasp. That we could couldn't possibly understand it. Understand it, and we should we should leave it in the hands of of the, of the, of the specialists. And and this is what I tried to do with with the second book in in the novel, uh, the autobiography of the tycoon. It's a short section. It's one of the shortest uh, sections in the book. But I really wanted to try the reader's patience a little bit with, with this, because this is what is done to us uh, (laughs) on a daily basis, you know, with, with, with financial reports, with, with the stuff we get from our credit cards uh, down to, if, if you read the financial section of the New York times, anything that involves money is meant to be incomprehensible. And we've all experienced this. I don't need to dwell on this. Um, And I, and I, I, I wanted to I wanted to to explore sort of the the this rhetoric a little bit and what it and what it what it does to the reader, how it you're supposed to feel a little bit worn down by it,
0: but there's also this other element, I think, too, which I loved, is it the tone just feels really off. Like the <laughs> sense of the person speaking is really. I don't know how to, I want to use a word like icky but it's like it is icky there's something there's something um really um off about this personality that you can't put your finger on and yet yeah. he's delivering this information so there is another thing happening other than just trying the patients around the lexicon for oh, sure no, no, there's course. this other sort of like emotional valence where you're like what where is this coming from
1: Many other things happen, and you know and it also implies a reveal. You sort of gave it away a moment ago, but if if it went by unnoticed, I won't highlight it again. But you know there is a reason why all this feels the way that it does, like so overblown, so icky to quote to quote you, <laughs> and and so like almost Trumpianly over the top. You know this. this he's he's so uh, there is this. He's so. Man spreading in his tone, you yeah. know, in in a way that, of course, is, 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 um, is completely intentional. I had, I had the the happy idea, I think, I think it was a happy idea to, because I was writing this section. And it was hard, because yeah, it's, a, it's, it's this voice that, you know, but but I, then I, I took this section and sort of shattered it. Uh, literally, the section is shattered. And when you when you read it, it it's, it's a. Uh, it becomes fragmentary. It becomes. It's full of what seemingly are notes to self, and and they're blank pages. And and I think that I was hoping to give that section sort of a, a formal edge. Going back to experimental uh, literature, I was trying to give it a a formal edge. And there's a jolt that I'm just ruining now by saying it. Like the first time you encounter this, and you go, uh, "What? Ha- like I sent the novel to my agent, and my agent was. He, he was laughing. Of course, he said, well, "I got to the second part and was like, I, I thought you had I thought you had left a note to yourself in the manuscript.'" <laughs> yeah. And then it was like, "Oh, of course, no." I mean, very very quickly it, it becomes obvious what's going on. But um, uh, so so that 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 is what I was trying to do. Also, I, I feel that I was hoping to amass this kind of capital with a reader in the first section, and then blow through it in the second part and then rebuild it in the in, yeah. the, in the third and fourth part. I think part. you
0: really do it. I, I it feels like this <laughs> grand success, Ernan, to me. <laughs> I mean they do feel like you you build up something and then you pull the rug out but then build it up again. But not with the same not with the same person building it up. That was the plan. That was yeah. the
1: plan and it's a gamble. I know I know perhaps some readers will you know I don't know. It will I, I don't know if it'll work for everyone, but what does. Yes. So that's okay.
0: Before I ask another question, why don't you just touch on the um the relevance or 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 irrelevance of the these sort of foreign things on the margins of the story?
1: Well, I think I think foreignness is essential both to me. I I'm a foreigner wherever I go, <laughs> and I have a, a bit of an accent in whichever language I speak. Uh so foreignness is important to me, and it's essential to the what people call the American experience. <laughs> uh, obviously, so I don't I don't think you can talk about uh, any kind of historical moment in the United States, whether it be the West or the consolidation of the United States uh, as a as, as a financial empire, uh, without also touching upon upon immigration. The, the way in which I try to write about this is sort of at least like threefold. Uh, and you mentioned this before. One is I, I try to highlight that the protagonist himself or the male protagonist, I should say that this tycoon is an immigrant, uh, right? His, his parents had this whole itinerary in Europe from Scandinavia to Scotland, to, uh, to the United States. And, you know, early on that uh, they come here in the 18th century. But um, we have a tendency to forget that those people were immigrants as well. We, we have a tendency to forget that Vanderbilt was an immigrant. Uh, you, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was, um, it's, just, it's just a term we reserve for uh, other people. <laughs> so that to me was, was important and that's actually how the book begins. Uh, by, by stressing that. So that's one of the ways in which um, immigration appears. The second way you alluded to it, and I, I'm grateful because nobody up till now had picked up on this, is just the Americans abroad, which is, of course, a very Jamesian thing, but I think it, it's something that has marked the, the literature of this country so deeply uh, that I, that I wanted to do something with that as well, uh, with, with the Ameri- with the Americans abroad. And in this case, uh, most of the action takes place in Switzerland, but there are some, some scenes that I, that I really like in the book that take place in Italy, for example. Um, so that's the second sort of a reverse or, or, or an emigration, if you, if you, if you like. And, and the third and most important aspect is that, uh, The longest section in the book, which is the third section written by a woman called Ida Partenza, very much hinges on immigration. Uh, Ida Partenza is the daughter of an Italian anarchist who migrated to Brooklyn around, you know, in the early uh, 19, sort of around 19, before the Great War. And it was shocking, you know, the more I read for this book, uh, the more I discovered the disparity, you know, on either side of the river, uh, you know, of the East River. On, on one side, you had a world of complete excess and luxury. And on the other side, there was like blood traction, you, you know, literally there is this beautiful, uh, these beautiful photographs taken by Baroness Abbott, a photographer I love from the, from the thirties. And. And you see these same year you know same year different side of the river and it's in 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 one year're in a you know it's sort of a jazz age uh, sort of uh, 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 extravaganza and in the other one you're in a small town in Sicily with with uh, malnourished children it's and it's all in New York minutes away from each other so this this was this is this is uh, something I really wanted to 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 think about. Also, I'm half Italian, so so that 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 is a meaningful thing to me. My family just as easily could have ended up in New York. My great grandparents, uh, they just happened to go to Argentina. But, um, and within that, uh, the the history of Italian American anarchists of the time is also fascinating to me. And I think the most fascinating thing is the the degree to which. Th- there are almost no records of their presence during during those you know almost three decades in the three four decades in in New York, um, and that 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 rose a lot of questions for me. So yes, uh, definitely foreignness is uh, is a, is a crucial is a crucial aspect, and I should also. I should also point out, as I was writing this, right, it was during the Trump administration, the bulk of the book was written during the Trump administration. And I was learning about the sort of the the Republican administrations of of the 20s, mostly um, uh, Harding and Coolidge, uh, Harding who ran under the slogan, America first. uh, And, uh, you know, and Coolidge who in 24, uh, enacted the sort of immigration quota uh, act that restricted immigration from very specific regions. Like if you were German, everything was okay, but if you were Asian or Italian, you couldn't you couldn't get in anymore. You know, and this was at the time where very similar things were were happening uh, in in the United States. You know, uh, in every day I could see them in the in the newspapers. So it it was it was really eye opening to me to see how Steadfast and and absolutely coherent and cohesive, the Republican agenda has been for over a century. Like they haven't they haven't moved an inch. You know, it, they stand for exactly the same things they did a hundred years ago. Exactly the same things, and you can see this very clearly in their immigration policies, and in not to talk about their their economic policies as well, which are also uh, seemingly impervious to reality change. And uh,
0: yeah and the the anarchist father in this book is is he connected at all to your own father in some way i know that your family left argentina for sweden partially or maybe fully because of their uh, less leftist activity when the coup happened
1: yeah uh no fully uh yeah for sure i i i grew up in a very political household and uh and my father mainly was was uh Active in his youth, then, then, yeah. then you know, then he became a, a little more comfortable and, and bourgeois uh, as, as time as time went on. But, uh, but yes, uh, I I, th- I thought about him a lot as I was writing this part of the book.
0: One other way I wanted to I wanted to connect um, the way fiction affects history, and and perhaps your history. Is with Borges and not the Borges that I think most Americans know—the the Borges of nested nested yeah. realities and fractal structures—but um, the Borges that you juxtapose with him, that examines and engages with literary history, um, that's mostly the Borges where that it gets erased when he when he travels as a figure in the world. <laughs> um, when I was reading your book, I had no idea how until I read it, just how much he's engaged with the United States, the literature of the United States, the mythology of the United States. Um, Isn't it crazy? I mean, I don't think it's a known fact at all. And you say that it's hard to think of two writers that shape Borges more than Poe and Whitman, and that for Borges, modern literature stems from these two. And, And in his own words... He says, undeniably, all that is specifically modern and contemporary poetry comes from two North Americans of genius, Edgar Allan Poe and Walt Whitman. From Poe derive Baudelaire symbolism, Valerie, and in a way, Joyce. And one might add that Poe's theory is perhaps more important and more productive than its practice. <laughs> um, from Whitman derives the civil poetry of humanity, often called engaged. And his particular interest in Whitman is interesting to me because of just how much Whitman is engaged in, in extending the myth of America through art making. Um, but when I think about like how you've described how, when you're in Sweden, Argentina was this mythological place. And then you go, you move back to Argentina and Sweden takes on sort of like the lost childhood uh, mythology. Where you did all... you find all this stuff? I'm like I'm freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we have your house, Mike. But um, <laughs> but you've also said that it if it wasn't for Borges, you wouldn't be in the United States. And I don't know how much of that is is an exaggeration, but it sounds to me like you're suggesting that Borges, in in one regard, points you there. He points you to the United States just as, as much as you uncover in your book on him, how much he himself is sort of facing towards it.
1: Yeah, it's a good question how hyperbolic I may have been in this obscure document that you, <laughs> you know, extracted from who knows where. I'm very impressed by your archival work here. It's uh, it's uh, it's terrifying, but impressive, uh, <laughs> um, it may be hyperbole, but it may also be totally accurate. I got to know American literature through Borges. This is this is not a made-up thing. This is totally true. I would read. I can I can show you. I still have the same copy of his collected works, and uh, I would read it and understand a very small percentage of what I was reading. I was you know a teenager and and trying to figure it out, um, but I was I was very intrigued and interested by. Especially his take on 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 these North American authors, many of whom I didn't know. And this is—it's a little embarrassing to admit that this face pre-exists Google. Like it, it really dates me very uh, in a <laughs> in a very in a very sad way. But it's true, and and this is also a true story. So I would I would I would jot down the names that I was interested in, and then go to. The national library and 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 look them up and and to my embarrassment, like a you know a good percentage of those names were totally made up and were <laughs> weren't available. So um, it was uh, that was also an education and talk about frames and 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 literature bleeding into reality. Like uh, that that was a very beautiful way of experiencing that as as a as a, as a kid, you know. Um, but yes, I feel I I read I read I read Poe. Thanks to him, first in the Julio Cortázar translation. So that that is mm-hmm. that is a nice trifecta right there. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely read Henry James for the first time. Thanks to him, I can say the same thing about Hawthorne and Emerson. I mean, Borges was also very. I think he was very conservative when it came to American literature. He. Uh, you know Nabokov famously despised everyone remember that when they asked him what's your view of uh, contemporary literature and uh, he said his his my, uh, the view is great from up here you know oh, wow. <laughs> yeah and um, uh, and he hated everyone but he loved Borges uh, but Borges hated everyone including Nabokov uh he, he he disliked so and he didn't like he loved detective fiction but he 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 didn't like sort of hard-boiled uh like he was not into Chandler Hammett Ross McDonald any any of that was not his thing uh so I think I think for him American literature uh stops maybe between the wars if you know um but uh but, yes, definitely, Borges was my entryway into American literature, but also, you know, his fingerprints are all over trust uh, in in the sense that I think it's ultimately from him uh, that I learned how to play, say with with genre and and it's from him that I uh, learned how to think about shifting frames and and play with different sort of invented contexts. and um and I'm, I'm thinking now as I speak of this beautiful story called Tlön Ukbar Orbis Tertius, mm-hmm. where there is this false encyclopedia circulating around, around the world in a very limited edition about this made-up planet, but toward the end of the story, uh, objects uh, from this planet that are not like in the periodic table of elements, so sort of definitely alien objects, start popping up in in the in the real world so uh, sort of fiction effectively invading and taking over uh the real world just as that famous parable that he wrote about uh the society of cartographers who in their in their attempt of making a totally accurate map uh made a map the size of the empire that that covered the empire yes. inch by inch the these are notions that that I think that trust engages with.
0: Forgive me for asking the one last terrifyingly archival question about you. Um, Oh no. When I had the, when I had the poet Ray Armentrout on, she talked about how she's often trying to create a quote unquote truth effect, an effect that with further thought is discovered to have a false bottom and that there are certain, patterns of syntax or ways to match sound with rhythm that can create the effect that a statement is true. And she Mm. isn't just doing this as a linguistic device or as a form of play, but as a way to examine the ways language can manipulate us. Um, You've also talked about how frames can create a truth effect that we are predisposed to think of the outer frame. The one that's closest to us as being real or more real that when uh Hokan and in in the distance is begins the story around a fire. and then we don't return to the fire until the end of the book. Uh, we're returning to a place that we confer a, a sense of of greater authenticity to. Um, and you described this as surrounding narrative, as you've mentioned also here, surrounding narrative with narrative, of cutting off the isthmus between a story and us, and sort of creating an island. And I guess I wanted to ask you about this because I see I'm really curious about you and islands, I guess, as you have academic. Oh my God. <laughs> you have academic work with titles like Figures of Confinement, Literature and Claustrophilia, and Archipelago, Figures of Isolation in Modern Transatlantic Literature. You have a essay from 2010 on islands, topical paradise, or even when you were celebrating at an event. Tova Janssen's work, you said isolation was a formal component of her work, and that her work was more like an archipelago, rather than most novels, which are more like continents. So I guess I wondered about islands and archipelagos. Um oh dear. <laughs> in relationship I mean, you've you've, you've you you persuasively talk about them in relationship to truth and truth effects by creating this framing, but I think of like also the main character in in your first book has no one to speak to. He, he is an Island moving across America. Um, and you mentioned at the beginning, you, you opened this conversation with me about isolation, um, and the way capital accumulation paradoxically might imprison people through its accumulation. But what is this? What is this through? What seems like a through line, uh, academic, literary, um, perhaps emotional uh, about archipelagos and islands versus continents
1: yeah i'm 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 now genuinely sort of uh uh paranoid about the extent of uh <laughs> like how did you fish all this up I don't know uh, but thank you and I'm sorry that you had to spend the time doing it and uh, <laughs> but uh, it's true it's true i i started um I developed like when I was in in grad school and how appalling all those titles are should give you a notion of how 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 dreadful those 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 pieces are as well. but I developed this 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 interest for um islands uh, and the way they're represented in literature and I think I think at the time maybe I didn't know exactly why, and only now. Uh, you know, over a decade or a decade. And yeah, later, can I see uh, why this was so interesting to me? Let's do it this way. I think the most famous island narrative there is, is utopia, uh, even if relatively few people may have read it, but it's such a part of our uh, vocabulary, this, this, you know, utopia uh, as a, uh, which means literally a no place, but as an idyllic, ideal configuration. Um, and I was interested in how literature itself could become sort of an utopian uh, configuration by, again, quoting, quoting you, quoting me by sort of severing the isthmus that, that connects it to to the to the to the mainland of, of referential reality, and we have been circling around this topic since the beginning of our conversation. Um, and 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 I'm I'm interested in how in how literature can become completely autonomous. And and since we're talking about my academic years, I, I should also mention here. You know, I I was heavily invested in 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 Adorno, who is someone actually who I keep rereading now and then and and remains very relevant to me, especially in his aesthetic theory. he, He makes a very strong case for aesthetic autonomy and the, the autonomy of the, of, of the artistic sphere, which is something that interests me because it ultimately leads to artistic freedom, which is, which is what I'm looking for and any lack of, of, restraints uh, and dogmas or ideological kind of determinations and and a self-reliance in self-imposed yet necessary rules, you know. And I found all of this to be enacted and represented in a very literal or, or rather literalized in 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 literature about islands mm-hmm. you know and i and i read a bunch of these narratives it's no sheer coincidence also campanella has his uh, his utopia in a in on an island so does francis bacon uh a perkins gilman in her land i think it's it's an island as well i think i'm not sure about that one um Samuel Butler has an utopic island. The list goes on and on and on. So there there is something about isolation and and this kind of Eden-like setting that go hand that go hand in hand. And I think um I guess I was I was interested in this in this simultaneously negative. And affirmative gesture that goes into isolation, negative because, of course, you're severing yourself away from uh, from a larger uh, uh, set. But affirmative because in 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 that negation, you're also creating this 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 other space. I, I very much doubt that any of what I just said made sense as I was talking. <laughs> you know, you know when you're talking and you're saying the words, but your brain is also kind of. <laughs> scanning your brain, thinking, what is it that I wrote about this? What is it that I have to say about it now? Like, it, yeah. it was a very meta thing going on in my head as I spoke. So please delete all of this. It's, it's most likely garbage. <laughs> but thank you for fishing it up and making right. me think about it again.
0: Um, well, I picked two really brief excerpts that I was hoping you'd read that just are examples of, um, of the ways you drop in some of these questions like say around framing into story um so one is the opening paragraph of the second book about new york city i was hoping you'd read that for us because i i i love that one and so this is the beginning of the second book which is written um by the industrialist who feels like he was unfairly portrayed in the first book
1: i am a financier in a city ruled by financiers My father was a financier in a city ruled by industrialists. His father was a financier in a city ruled by merchants. His father was a financier in a city ruled by a tight-knit society, indolent and priggish like most provincial aristocracies. These four cities are one and the same. New York.
0: And I was hoping maybe we could follow that with the first two paragraphs on page eighty three, which is um from the first book, so this is the fiction- this is the fictionalized wife of the industrialist in this book she's called Helen, and she's discussing the deterioration of her mental state, but it also feels like it evokes this sort of fractal framing in a different way
1: oh, beautiful, beautiful selection I mean, I've never read this out loud except for when I was working on it because I read stuff to myself, but um, okay. She could feel herself think differently and knew that in the end, it did not matter whether this feeling was based on reality or fantasies. What mattered was that she was unable to stop thinking about her thoughts. Her speculations reflected one another like parallel mirrors And endlessly, each image inside the vertiginous tunnel looked at the next, wondering whether it was the original or a reproduction. This, she told herself, was the beginning of madness, the mind becoming the flesh for its own teeth. Because she felt increasingly lost in the new tyrannical architecture of her brain, and because she no longer trusted her thoughts or her memory, she started relying on her journals, which she kept with daily rigor. She hoped her future self, the one reading her diaries would be able to use those writings as a measure of how far into her delirium she had gone. Would she see herself on the page? She addressed herself constantly in her entries asking herself to believe that it was, in fact, she who had written those words in the past, even if her future self refused to believe it, even if, as she read, she were unable to recognize her own
0: handwriting. We've been listening to Hernan Diaz read from his latest book, Trust. I'd like to spend the rest of the time with voice. To me, the the um, heart of the book even though we've spent so much time on form, is really voice. Also, I think voice is what's most miraculous to me about trust, that we start in the style of Edith Wharton or Henry James, and by the end of your novel we're in something that's more like Jean Rhys or Virginia Woolf, that your syntax changes from chapter to chapter, um, and that you actually develop the style guide that sat along each of these Um, chapters, Uh, and I'd be curious to hear about any specific constraints you might have set yourself in each of those chapters. But before we hear that, um, I know you were recently in conversation with two past Between the Covers guests, Alejandro Zambra and Mark Haber, who both have new books out, um, Chilean Poet and St. Sebastian's Abyss, respectively. So when I, when I had Mark on his, for his debut book, we talked a lot about voice because people were marveling at how Reinhardt's garden felt like it was written by a Latin American writer, that he had somehow in, inhabited the terms of that literary universe in some way while also remaining very much Mark Haber at the same time. Also, as an aside, his enthusiasm for the work of Fernanda Melchor is, is largely the reason um, she came on the show. But, but in the spirit of voice, I wanted to play a question from Mark to you, um, thinking about the ways, uh, at least I'm thinking about the ways you've created these style guides. You've, you've, uh, I think, convincingly, convincingly moved from book to book and inhabited these different voices so well. Um, this is Mark's question for you. Hi, David Hey, Ernan. This is Mark Haber. Congratulations, Ernan, on all your success with The Trust. It's so well-deserved. It's just a, it's a feat. It's a magnificent novel. So I had a question that occurred to me after uh, you'd left Houston. Being a monolingual writer as I am, I only know English. Does your rich background in different languages, Spanish and Swedish and English, does that uh, inform your writing in any way? Thanks a lot.
1: What a lovely question. And how lovely to hear uh, mark's voice. i i I love Mark Haber uh, so much, and uh, his work is so beautiful. And that's a lovely question. i uh, so at home we spoke Spanish, and but out in the world, my first social tongue was was Swedish. I never studied English formally. I, I feel like got it almost as a gift. Only by virtue of knowing Swedish, and you know, it's it's not uncommon that people who have Swedish will somewhat spontaneously get get English. And I, I feel I was one of, I was one of them. I just started reading novels with a dictionary. That's really how I taught myself. And then, of course, I I, I moved to English speaking countries. But I've, except for my childhood sort of uh, forays into terrible short story writing and even worse poetry. Uh, I've I've never written seriously fiction in any other language than English, and to respond directly to to Mark's question, yes, being uh, you know coming from other languages and having other languages has definitely in, informed my my writing in English. The reason why I write in English is love. I, I love this language there, and and it's unexplainable as love. I feel I can I can do and say things that I that I can't in other languages. It has a texture that I like. It's like asking a sculptor, you know, why do you work with wood instead of with marble? And, you know, it it will most likely, I don't know, the first thing about sculpture, but I would imagine it's some of it's some sort of connection between the material and the hand. And that's very much how I feel about the English language. And I can't explain it any better. Than this, what I can say with just a smidge more of uh, eloquence is that there are several things that intellectually I, I like about English. I like uh, what English syntax is able to do, which is which is very specific, and it, it would take probably a bit of time. I like how prepositions can can change uh, the meaning of words in ways that they can't say, in, in romance languages. That, that is very beautiful to me. I love that it has sort of a, a Germanic Saxon keyboard register and then a sort of a, a romance Latin register, you know, how you, how you can express both of those things. And, th- and that is actually something that I thought about for, for, for Trust, Andrew Bevel, uh, doesn't use many sort of Latinate uh, words. Uh, that that was something that I was that I was thinking about as I was as I was writing it. That that that's a quick example. I suppose also because because it is an acquired language, um, uh, there is there is a degree of attention that to me is very productive. There is there is a certain distance that to me is is very productive as well. Uh, uh, there is a velocity to it uh, in in my head that I also find very uh, uh, productive so I think the, these are some of the reasons why I write in English and how it being a foreign language has has shaped my uh, my style I can't I can't imagine myself no nor do I want to uh, writing writing in 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 a, in any other language, and going back to that Borges story that that you know that you you quoted me saying in some obscure uh, source that that uh, he was the reason why I had moved to the United States. This may or may not be true, but what is one hundred percent true is that I moved to the United States and England because I wanted to live in English. That this was the this is the primary like academia was. I didn't. I didn't have a penny, so it was the way in which I could make it happen uh, through grants and such. Uh, but but the 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 primary reason was that I, I wanted to live a life in English, and I you know, and that's why I'm still here. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah.
0: So. In in contrast to you saying you are not interested in mimesis or the referential aspects of fiction, you do seem very interested in it when it comes to nonfiction, of pulling back the curtain on just how much nonfiction has far less of a representational relationship to the truth or to reality than it claims to have. For instance, as you mentioned earlier, you revive an era when anarchism was uh, robust in the United States as a movement in the sense that there were over 500 anarchist periodicals that existed between 1870 and 1940. Yes. And that history has been erased in real life, not because it wasn't true, but because it was either an inconvenient truth or incompatible with um, the myth-making that was happening around America. But you also do this on the level of language. the The second book in Trust, called My Life, Immediately is staking a claim with that title to a certain truth, and the "my" in it is um, suggesting that, uh, in contrast to the novel uh, that precedes it, that this is this is coming from an authority. Um, and and as I mentioned earlier, the second book feels the most off, and it's also this this book with its draft, for instance, where instead of a short dignified account of Mildred's rapid mental decline. We find the placeholder words short, dignified account. So we already know that there's a certain agenda to what the scene is going to be is going to be created, or they're more concerned about the effect of the scene than the truth of the scene. Perhaps um, that we're seeing here how a voice is constructed. But because the memoirist has hired a ghostwriter, and when the ghostwriter records how he speaks in a faithful way and then reads it back to him, and he's very dissatisfied because he doesn't feel like there's enough gravitas or grandeur in the portrayal, he isn't self-aware enough to see that he lacks those qualities that she's actually showing him himself, but instead is sort of asking for her to create a better voice or a voice a voice of how he would imagine himself. And she does this by by reading and collecting other voices. Kind of the way you're doing that. She creates this Frankenstein voice, though, a, a unified voice coming from many voices. But even if there weren't a ghostwriter, I think you're pointing at something about nonfiction and also about history. I think any memoirist wants to be seen in a certain way or see themselves or can only see themselves in a certain limited way that they can't see around, let alone questions of memory um, and its fallibility. And I wonder if we could just spend a moment around this question of the Frankenstein voice or or more generally of the fictional nature of nonfiction, um, the inevitable fiction, fictional nature of nonfiction, um, as you construct Ida's voice, which is... Which is Bevel's voice?
1: Yeah, I, I should preface this by by saying you know the, the, there there's so many um, colleagues who are nonfiction writers who have thought about this uh, form of writing uh, very seriously and uh, and intelligently, and I am I am purely a fiction writer, and my nonfiction is imagined, and and so. Whatever I say comes from, from this kind of place of enunciation. I am not a nonfiction writer. I am I am just I am just toying uh here uh with 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 the border between non and fiction. Uh that, that is what interests me. Uh so so I'm not questioning or indicting nonfiction as a as a genre which for which I have an enormous respect. I feel it's important to 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 clarify this. Perhaps the one of the crucial purposes of the novel, or what one of the reasons that that drove me to write the book to begin with, was to explore how um, movable and and uh, evanescent the 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 border between between fact and fiction is in the realm of writing, right? Uh, and as we discussed before, how writing can actually, in 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 a weird feedback, have have an effect on reality and 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 you know almost almost to eternity, <laughs> if you if you like. So this is this is something that that concerns me a lot, and I think it also ties in with uh, the watcher whom we we're talking about, who is this liminal textual presence who is on the on the border. Uh, in inhabits the border between literature and, and life. So this is something that that concerns me and even ties back to the islands, perhaps, you know what I was what I was trying to do in this in this in this second section is uh, first, and this is a this is a massive spoiler. so so maybe skip ahead for two minutes if you haven't read the book uh, right now. but what I was what I was what I was trying to do is first to, to, to present, this extremely almost intolerable voice because it's so masculine. It's so blustery. It's so aggressive. It's, it has no doubt, no self doubt whatsoever, only, uh, you know, an absolute certainty that it, it, it deserves to be heard. You know, this is the kind of voice that, that we're given and not to worry. It's only just a, you know, like 30 pages or so. But that—that is—that is the voice, and and I—I I wanted hopefully to elicit certain feelings, in or from the from the reader, and then the reveal, and this is this is the spoiler, is that it was indeed a, a woman impersonating this kind of or assuming this 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 voice, um, uh, and and this goes to show both how you know, again, uh, uh, the, the, the voice of, of, of women so often are squashed underneath these sort of heavy masculine voices that take up all the space, literally in this case, you know, Ida's voice vanishes under the voice she, this masculine voice she has, she has created for her, for her employer. Um, and, but, and I also wanted to highlight the fact and I think we've, we've, discussed this before how this sense of authority and gravitas that you to use the word that you just just used a moment ago um are are fictive are 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 the result of rhetorical operations and it occurred to me that it would be a nice idea to have ida in because she's she's a young woman from brooklyn uh, self-taught uh, she has had uh, no access to this this world of privilege ever until she got this job so to me it it, it was a good idea which i then gave I, ida herself a lot of my research and a lot of my process i gave to ida like for instance all the stuff that you see her doing at libraries is stuff that I did at archives, you know, or, or sources that I consulted, I have her consulting and so on and so forth. Uh, So there is a very kind of uh, meta uh, thing there, uh, uh, where I, where I, where I gave her my, my actual research, but I thought it would be a good idea for, for a character like this, who, as I was saying is self-taught, uh, from, from the others, from the quote unquote wrong side of the river to, uh, to look to history in order to complete this task, and and what she does effectively, and this is what the novel says, she creates this sort of monster, you know, with body parts sourced from other sort of great men in quotes uh, of of American history, and and to do this, I I read mostly memoirs. I started I started with Benjamin Franklin, and I kind of ended with. Uh, Calvin Coolidge ish, kind of that that era. Um, just to get a sense of of that tone, I didn't want anything anachronistic, uh, and uh, and I tried to distill whatever I thought was uh, whatever made these men uh, authoritative, whatever gave these men the, the 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 luster that they hope they will have. Um, there aren't any direct quotes or anything, but it's, but it's, I, I, I really learned, I think I, I think I, I, I think I got a better sense of how history is actually made, you know, by these people or, or how they hope it will be, it will be made.
0: Yeah. I mean, to me, as I alluded to at the beginning, to me, if I were to put forth what I think the book is about, I don't think the book is at its heart about money. Um, At least I want to assert that it isn't. Um, Because I think about Ida, she's not happy with how the novelist portrays the industrialist's wife, and she's not happy about how the memoirist is portraying the industrialist's wife. And yet the two documents that are going to be in the world ultimately are going to be those portrayals of the industrialist's wife, the novel and the, the memoir. Um, right. The things, the things in the book that will disappear, are her views essentially. Um, to me, this novel is more than anything about canon formation and the erasure of women. That ultimately, this is a novel with a, a feminist ethos. Like I think of the lines of Le Guin to to keep women's words, women's works alive and powerful that's what I see as our job as writers and readers for the next 15 years and the next 50. And I feel like you've done something really amazing by dramatizing the erasure itself, revealing the mechanics of how it happens, but also peeling back and revealing the voices that will never surface as if we're discovering a long lost recording, um, like a rescue from something that shouldn't even be in the archive. Because of this, I could imagine the book being set in any number of non-money settings. You could put this in at the conference that's deciding what books are going to be in the Bible or what books are not going to be in the Bible or at a sci-fi award nomination committee. Um, I think you could set it in a number of places and still enact a nested narrative that would be about the falsehood of the self-made man but really about telling the story of women
1: yes and to a small extent no to a lot <laughs> of what you said <laughs> first uh, uh, thank you I mean for what you said about this book having a feminist ethos and being mostly about the erasure of women and I it's not lost in me that here we are two dudes talking about that uh, and and that's something also that I, grappled with during the writing of the novel itself with issues mm-hmm. of appropriation, with issues of, you know, voice again. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I thought if uh, someone asked Colson Whitehead about this and and he said, you, you can write about anything you like, just don't fuck it up. You know? And I, yeah. I, th- I think, I think that's, that that's quite true, but all this to say, you know, I, th- I think, I think we should pause and acknowledge that fact that, um, it happens to be two men talking about this. I think that's an important thing to, to state, although it's abundantly obvious, but um, when I was again, thinking of, of all of these issues, I also thought this is what literature ought to do. It, it should be able to expand beyond, you know, my little circumstances. Uh, otherwise, literature becomes a selfie which it kind of has uh, uh it to to a large extent we're not going down that rabbit hole but i but i think right the writing i am interested in takes this chance of of trying to imagine uh other other lives and other positions and other experiences and and that's that's what i try to do and it's not just imagining any other life and any other experience. I, I, I'm, I'm particularly interested in lives and experiences that have been, uh, to to some extent, uh, uh, deleted from certain kind of kinds of narratives. And here's my partial no to what you said, which is I think it it is important that it is about money in the United States and not a sci fi convention, because. <sighs> because 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 money is the all organizing force in the in in american society i mean in society in modern society as a whole i i say this without hesitation more than any other institution i think money is an institution more than any other institution it's money but in the United States, in particular, the place that money occupies is unparalleled. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if you think of other uh, other countries, and again circling back to the very beginning of our conversation, um, narratives around money or of money making are completely devoid of women. And so, so here you have the all defining instance of the American dream, because. Let's not fool ourselves. That's what the American dream is about—the the, sort of the, the the ability to make money, yeah. and even 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 the notion of freedom. I I sometimes fear may may be sort of freedom of enterprise above anything else, right? Uh, and 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 freedom to own property. Um, so here we have this this what is what is at the core of again. Uh, the American dream, the American experience wh- however you want to phrase it and somehow it's a world without without women like literally without women both in history and in 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 fiction I mean perhaps we can find a few exceptions but I think uh, I think overwhelmingly I think we can we can agree that that this is the case and this is and this is why money matters in that sense and I think also, um, money uh, matters because money has been an important instrument in the segregation of women from social life you know yeah. their inability to earn it their their inability to own private property until relatively very recently in the united states so money has been effectively a, a very important tool in the subjugation of women in in the world and in and in this country in particular. So I, I do think it matters. And lastly it matters because money to circle back to the title of the of the book, money has everything to do with with trust, like very much like language. There is, a contract, there is a contractual dimension to money. We have all agreed that money has a certain value, that it's, that it's not inherent to it. There is no purchase power inherent to a $10 bill other than the one that is bestowed on it uh, by virtue of our trust in, in a system that supports it.
0: So I just want to hear a little bit more about this. You've talked about how money here and in other places is a fiction, so here's an example of of something with real effects in the world that is a fiction that um, there's nothing material or tangible about it. Its value is the result of a long series of conventions. It's make believe. You you say yes. all money is at heart play money, and all of us have gathered voluntarily or otherwise around the board. And this reminded me of um, the line in in the Borges. Uh, the sect of the Phoenix that goes, the world is the mirror of the game, which you've written about, uh, how he enacts this in the chess sonnets. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, where the board of the game, which ought to be a representation of reality, in Borges's story, the board is reality. And the battle in the story is subordinated to the board. So we have a reversed hierarchy of representation. The smallest frame somehow becomes the outer frame that contains all the frames. Yeah. Um. So, so as you say in your your book on Borges, um, he literalizes the notion that we are all being played, or as I might say, we've all been framed. But <laughs> I wonder. But I wonder if I I was going to say. I wonder if words are, are similar to money in this way, which I think you do think it's similar to money this way. If it, Going back to the, the title, trust, um, they, like money, depend upon the collective ag- agreement, the collective make-believe that this particular sound, this particular sound with our tongue and our palate and our lips and throat, or this scribble with your now legendary 20-year-old fountain pen... Um, <laughs> which uh, you talk about on Seth Meyers, that that scribble means this and not this other thing, that maybe words are the first fiction that create reality, that words are the first fiction that create history. Um, I was going to ask you if this was a forced analogy, but this is my long-winded sort of explication of what I think you've already suggested.
1: Yeah. No, I, I can I can only assent and confirm. If I was drawn to money, it's precisely for the reasons you, you just pointed out. It is it is it is a sign, it is sort of a semiotic event. It's a you know highly highly conventional as all signs are. Um, and yet it's able to touch the world. It has it has mass, it has it has a weight, and it it and it it's able to make a dent in reality and this to me was was amazing to just to pause and, and think about it which we take for granted because we live in a modern society but the fact that we have this 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 sign this conventional symbol that is able to alter life itself you know uh, that has a material effect on 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 our surrounding conditions was mind blowing, and I, I decided actually that that was the germ of the project, and I, I decided to extend that. Well, if 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 a five dollar bill can do that, surely a novel can do that as well. You know, make a dent in reality. Yeah, and and off we go.
0: Yeah, no, and I I'm confident that your your book has and will. I I really appreciate you being on the show today, Arnon.
1: David, I I have to say I feel. I've been sort of with a scholar on me. I don't understand why such a person would exist, but <laughs> but, but, but here you are, and it's yes, it was very. Uh, this is uh, the most one of the most engaging conversations I've had on on not just on the book but on literature, and I'm I'm very impressed with uh, uh, you know all all your erudition and everything that went into it and i'm very grateful uh, to you for uh, having um, had me on your on your on your legendary show thank <laughs> you so much it <laughs> is it is a legendary show
0: that's sweet of you to say we've been talking today to the novelist hernan diaz about his latest book trust you've been listening to between the covers i'm david neyman your host <laughs> Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Hernan Diaz's work at HernanDiaz.net. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, help ensure the future of conversations just like this by joining the community of Between the Covers listener supporters at patreon.com slash between the covers, where you can check out a wide variety of potential benefits of doing so. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com support. like to thank the tinhouse team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Becky Kramer in publicity, Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers' Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.